Matthew, the ninth chapter. What drives people to murder? It's a rhetorical question, but thank you. <laughs> what drives people to murder? Isn't that a, uh, yeah, hate, isn't that a popular subject? It's interesting. I typed that into Google and uh, what drives people to murder. And there were literally more websites, more articles, more movies, more TV shows than I could even fathom. People are interested in what drives people to murder. But have you ever thought about what drove the religious establishment to murder Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to see in our passage today. Where did this all begin? We know the religious authorities are the ones that handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities to have him murdered. But where did it all start? That's what we're going to see in our passage today. Now, when you read the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that there are primarily three groups of people that oppose Jesus Christ's ministry uh, repeatedly. You have the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The scribes, easy way to remember these, the scribes are the scholars. The scribe starts with SC, scholar starts with SC. The scribes were the scholars. They interpreted the law of Moses, the Old Testament, the first five books of the, uh, you know, of the uh, Old Testament. They, they were the interpreters of the scripture. So if you had a question about the law in the scripture, if you were a Jew, you went to the scribes and they told you how to interpret it. Uh, they were responsible for copying the scriptures from scroll to scroll to scroll. Highly important people, very influential. And another group that you see Jesus having run-ins with was the Pharisees. Now, an easy way to remember the Pharisees is it starts with P, and so they were the purists, right? The Pharisees were the purists. The Pharisees came out of the 400 silent years. Does anybody know when that was? Of course, Aaron does. Teacher's pet. Ah, just kidding. The 400 silent years is the time from the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, to the ministry of John the Baptist and the beginning of the Gospels in the New Testament, right? There was a gap in there called the 400 silent years where God did not speak through a prophet to his people Israel. Now, during that time, the Jews got incredibly lax in their observance of Judaism. What happened during that time? We're talking 400 years. During that time, the whole Roman world, the Jewish world, became increasingly more and more influenced by the Greek culture. This is called the Hellenization, right? Alexander the Great, he essentially forced Greek culture upon everybody. And the Jews had went with the drift of the culture around them, and they became very lax. So the Pharisees developed during this time because they said, we're not having anything to do with those backslidden worldly Jews. And they became the purists. So they went to the word and they followed it to the letter, to the T, and they observed scrupulously every single law in the Old Testament. They said there were 632 laws that Moses put in the Old Testament, right? And they observed every single one of them. And not only that, they had their own writings from the rabbis, um, thousands of rules on top of rules, and they observed all of these and all these traditions meticulously. So they were always having it going toe-to-toe with Jesus because Jesus wasn't observing all their man-made traditions. And so they didn't like that. They're the purists. And they thought Jesus was some sort of, you know, he's, he can't be from God because he's not doing religion the way we think he should, right? And then you had the last group, the Sadducees. I'm not going to talk about them at length because we have not been introduced to them in the Gospel of Matthew. But if you want to do some extra credit homework, just find out who the Sadducees were. I'll give you something that you can latch on to. The Sadducees were sad, you see, 
Now, you need to find out the reason why, okay? You can do that this week. If you come back next week and say, I can tell you why they were sad, then you've done your homework, uh, gold star. All right, so these religious authorities were constantly at odds with Jesus Christ. Finally, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were normally at odds with one another, they came together because they were united in their hatred of Jesus Christ. The Sadducees were political. Jesus was the king. The Pharisees were the purists. Jesus broke their traditions. So they came together, and they were driven to murder Jesus Christ. Now, where did that all start, though? We're going to find that in the passage today. We are going to see that the Pharisees and the scribes and some other disciples in here had problems, had opposition to three areas of Jesus' authority. The first one, very simple, simple outline today. You can check it out. The authority to forgive sin. The scribes, the Pharisees, the opposition, they were opposed to Jesus' authority to forgive sin. They were also opposed to Jesus' authority to call sinners. And they were also opposed to Jesus' authority to break tradition. So those things, to forgive sin, call sinners, and to break tradition. We're going to see those in this passage today. Now, you might say, so what? What does this have to do with me? Well, good news. We can learn from the opposition. What we're going to do as we go through this passage is we're going to scan ourselves and we're going to say, do we have any of the same attitudes that these opposers have? Like maybe not even consciously, but do we subconsciously have these attitudes? Do we oppose Jesus Christ in any of these ways? And so what we're going to do is we're going to learn by kind of by bad example. It's going to be sort of a scanning message. And that's what it means to you. Verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would make the book live to us. Open our hearts. Give our hearts the eyes of understanding that we may hear you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So he got into the boat, and then he crossed over, and he came to his own city. You remember last time Jesus had just been rejected in the Gergesenes, right? He had come with his disciples. He found, uh, comes up to the shore, two demon-possessed men. Jesus cast the demons out of these men. They'd been cutting themselves. They were total outcasts. Jesus restores them completely, puts them in their right mind. The demons go out of the men. They run into these pigs, you remember? And these pigs run down this hillside and all die. And it was the first case of deviled ham, right? You guys, oh no, can't get that off two times in a row, can you? Yeah, all right, good. Okay, so... Then what happened was all the people that came from that city, they came out to meet Jesus. And you'd think they'd be like, wow, this guy can cast out demons. He can take people from being addicted to bondage, cutting themselves, and he can put them in their right mind. Jesus, come stay with us forever. But instead what they did was they said, Jesus, get out of here, right? You guys remember this story. Why would somebody tell Jesus to leave? Well, when the light gets shined into your darkness, you don't like it. There's only two things to do when the light gets shined on your darkness. You either come clean or you don't, one or the other. And these people said, Jesus, get out of here. And so look at there. He gets into the boat. He crosses over and he comes to his own city. He gets back into the boat. 
back into the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to his own city. His own city is not referring to Nazareth. It's referring to Capernaum at this time. Uh, Matthew 4.13 says that he came and dwelt in Capernaum, likely Peter's house. So that's where he's at, and it says, they brought to him a paralytic. Turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 2, please. You know the gospel accounts have, uh, you know, it's kind of the same stories, but from different perspective. Matthew gives us a brief, brief account. So we're going to turn over to Mark chapter 2 to find more of an elaborate uh, account of what's going on here. In Matthew, it says, they brought to him a paralytic. So I'm going to read to you from Mark uh, a little bit more about this scene. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even at the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, can you picture this? Jesus is having a Bible study in a house that's so packed that nobody can get into it, right? And these guys, four guys, they've got their buddy on a stretcher. And they say, look, we need to get him to Jesus. And there's no room. We can't get him in there. So what do we do? Well, they go up on the roof. This is a Palestinian roof. It was typical. They had their patio areas on the roof. It's still like that today. And these guys go up on the roof. They go up the stairs. They've got the guy. Hard work, right, by the way? Anybody ever been a pallbearer? I mean, just, you know, it's kind of like that. Only the guy's still alive. But they take panels out of the roof, and they lower Jesus down. Can you imagine? All of a sudden right now, you just see like, you know, debris, <laughs> And here comes the panel, right? And here comes this guy in front of you. He's probably all wobbly like this. You know, it's probably not like a crane, like mechanical. He's all perfect. He's probably like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and then Jesus is teaching a Bible study, and he's, what is going on here? And notice what it says back in Matthew, in chapter uh, 9 there. Can I get by you, Jeannie, real quick? Is everybody hot or what? Okay. Thank you. Now back into Matthew, look at what it says. Verse 2, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, there is talking about the faith of the four men. Jesus sees their faith. They had some great faith, right? These guys knew without a doubt that Jesus could do something for their friends, so they stopped at nothing to get their friend to Jesus. Hey, great friends, by the way, right? Aren't those good friends where they will stop at nothing to get you to Jesus? That takes a lot of faith. Can you imagine laying, you know, lowering this guy down? How much faith they had because it would probably would have been pretty hard to get him back up, <laughs> you know? They knew that something was going to happen. This was not some sort of wishy-washy, double-minded faith. This was faith, real faith, and Jesus took notice of it. And he says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. What? That's not why we came here, Jesus. I thought you were going to like heal the guy or something, but you're saying, wait, you know, his sins are forgiven? That's, Jesus, let me just refresh you, you know, to the situation. We want healing. So why in the world would Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Well, some have suggested because of this passage, they say all physical sickness has to do with personal sin. Oh, this guy was physically sick because he had sinned, and so Jesus heals his sin. That's not true. 
All physical sickness is not a result of personal sin. In fact, in John, uh, in the ninth chapter, verses 1 through 3, there's a blind guy. The disciples come to Jesus. They say, who sinned, this blind guy or his parents, that he might be blind? Jesus says, neither of them, that, but that the work of the Lord might be displayed in him. In other words, this guy was blind, and it was all set up for the very day that Jesus would heal him, and he would be a witness to other people. That's an interesting reason, right? Another reason people get sick um, there are some times where people are sick because of their sin. You know, for instance, if you're involved in drugs, you know, and you make yourself sick, well, of course, the natural consequences of sin sometimes lead to sickness. How about this, holding unforgiveness in your heart? If you do that, I mean, doctors prove that holding on to guilt and shame and unforgiveness and anger, that can cause all kinds of health maladies, right? Uh, so that's another reason people get sick. Another reason people get sick is simply just because we live in a fallen world. You know, that's it. Sometimes Christians get a little hokey. They try to make superstitious, like, oh, he must, he must be sick because he's in sin. Well, it could be, probably not, you know, in this case. He's, you know, that's not the deal. So that's not why Jesus is saying, uh, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus was concerned supremely with this man's eternal condition, just like he's supremely concerned with your eternal condition, right? You in here today, Jesus is supremely concerned with whether or not you're going to go to hell or not, right? When you're born into this body of sin, you're born into a destiny of hell. And Jesus is really concerned about that. And he's concerned about this man, and so he comes and he forgives his sin. Let me say this. Being physically healed, as great as it would be, is not as great as being forgiven of your sin. They're not comparable. Do you agree? Jesus has the authority to heal the body's sickness and heal the sickness of the soul. Now, I talked about opposition. Here it comes. Verse 3. And at once, some of the scribes, the scribes were the who? The scholars. Good job. Man, teacher's pet. Teacher's pet. Good job. The scribes are the scholars. And at once, some of these scholars said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now, Mark's account says, here's what Mark says. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, that's a good observation. So here Jesus is, these religious authorities around him, and he looks at this guy and he says, your sins are forgiven you. And these religious scholars, they go, how can he do that? Is he in the place of God? And so they're, they're right on top of it, right? Exactly right. If Jesus does not have the authority to forgive your sin, then he is blaspheming. Like C.S. Lewis said, the things Jesus said, it leaves three possibilities. He was either a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he's Lord, one or the other. Because people don't go around saying things like, your sins are forgiven unless they're either a liar, a lunatic, or else they have the authority to do that, right? And so what Jesus is doing is he's displaying the fact that he's God in the flesh. God alone has the power to forgive sin, right? Maybe you've sinned against somebody today and they've forgiven you, and that's good. You know, it's good to have peace between humans. But I'll tell you what, the most important thing is that God has forgiven you, right? Right? Now, good news, he wants to forgive you. 
wants to forgive you of everything you've ever done. He wants to wipe the slate clean and give you a new life. That's what Jesus does. But if you haven't been forgiven by God, uh, you need to be, right? That's the condition, you know, for going to heaven or hell is you need to be born again. You need to be born again. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ. You need your sin forgiven, right? And so Jesus, he says, why does this, uh, he said, why does this man speak, speak back, uh, blasphemies? Uh, but Jesus, verse 4, he knows their thoughts. And he says, why do you think evil in your thoughts? Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier? Now he's going to set him up here with a question. Look at that, verse 5. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Which one's easier to say? So that you get the picture? The scholars, oh, he's speaking blasphemies. And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. Is it easier for me just to say that your sins are forgiven, or is it easier for me to say, arise and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. There's no visual evidence of that, right? I mean, sometimes there is. Somebody gets forgiven, the burden's lifted from them. But what Jesus is doing is he's putting himself in a position right now that if he's, he's, he's going to prove to him that he has the authority to forgive sins. It's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than arise and walk because if you say arise and walk and the guy doesn't arise and walk, you're, we probably wouldn't be talking about Jesus here today if that happened because he'd be just displayed as a phony. Instantly, right? But look what he does. You ready for this? Verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Son of Man, title for Jesus, found in Daniel. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose, and he departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given power, such power to men. Now, think of this. He says, but that you may know. Now, there are people that have read the Bible a little bit, and they say, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God. He says right here, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the, forgive, the authority to forgive sins on earth. He's saying, I'm God in the flesh, because who can forgive your sin but God alone? The Bible says in many places Jesus claims to be God, and he does it in these ways where if you don't have the ears to hear, you don't pick up on it, right? He says, arise, take up your bed, and go to the house. Now, can you imagine the intensity at this moment? Remember the ceiling tiles are out? Here it is. <laughs> you know, these people, your, son, your sins are forgiven you. The guy's laying there like, you know, is there, arise, get up, and walk. Everybody would have been like, <gasps> you know, somebody's cell phone would have went off. Turn that thing on silent. In a Bible study. And he arose. And he departed. And he went to his house. Changed forever. He came in through the roof on a stretcher, and he leaves through the front door on his feet. I bet the scribes went out the back door. <laughs> like, oh gosh, I guess. I need so, what do we learn here? Well, First of all, we, we learn that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, right? That's good news for you today because some of you walk around continuously burdened by the guilt of your past. Some of you do that all the time. You do it constantly. But what you have to know from this is Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And so what you do is you just come to him and you say, Jesus, I've messed up. I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you, God. And you can guarantee that you're forgiven because he has the, forgiven, he has the authority to forgive your sin. Right? So now, if you leave here today and you keep 
heaping the guilt on yourself, it's not, it's, it's not because Jesus hasn't forgiven you or won't forgive you. It's because for whatever reason, you're allowing that to happen. You're not taking control of your mind and taking your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And so when I get heaped under the weight of my guilt, what I do is I say, no, 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 Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins, and his death on the cross was absolutely sufficient for my sin. And I believe that, and I rest on that, and I take it back to the cross over and over again. And I'll tell you, when you do that and when you believe that, you start to experience freedom from guilt, right? Has anybody ever experienced the freedom from guilt and shame? Oh, my goodness. People go from eating a handful of pills just to sleep at night, handful of pills to wake up in the morning. You know, and they go from that to being healthy, productive members of society. In fact, that's what we're going to get into into the next section, how Jesus restores people. Look at number two, Jesus' authority to call sinners. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Awesome, right? Okay, guess who this Matthew is? Take a guess. Well, yeah, I mean, but what else did he do? But what else did he do? He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, my goodness, it's right there. It's like a guy coming down through the roof. It's right there. But you all had good answers, and so I want to commend you on that. He was a tax collector, uh, but he also wrote this book that you have right in front of you. Interesting enough, he's also named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. There's a guy in the Bible named James, the son of Alphaeus, probably his brother. It was common that guys had two names in this day and age. And so he's, he's Levi, he's Matthew. Now he's sitting at the tax office. He was a tax collector before coming to Christ. Now, I want you to understand how tax collectors were perceived in, you know, at this time in Palestine, around the Sea of Galilee in this area, one word can describe tax collector, and it also starts with a T. <laughs> See how helpful this is today? Traitor, right? That's how the tax collectors were viewed. Why? Because Rome, Rome came and just dominated everybody, oppressed everybody, oppressed the Jews. And what they did was they implemented a taxation upon everybody, you know, to keep, and, you know, kind of keep things running or whatever. But it was harsh. It was oppressive. And the, the Romans were notably like harsh and oppressive to the Jews, and the Jews notably, by and large, hated them. But guess how Rome would collect tax from the Jews? They would hire Jews <laughs> to do it. So these guys are collecting these harsh, oppressive taxes from this tyrannical government from their own people, right? It's very much like this. You can imagine like somebody that we think are, are an enemy of the United States or something, you know, uh, back around 9-11, everybody thought like, you know, or whatever. And you can imagine like some invading force coming to Mason City, setting up shop, imposing heavy taxes on everybody, and then hiring you to collect the taxes from the rest of us, right? So people hated tax collectors. In fact, if you wanted to become a tax collector, you were instantly kicked out of the synagogue. You could not go worship anymore as a Jew. You were done. Your family complete disgrace upon your family. They were viewed with, you know, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the criminals. They were bandits. The way they made money was they, they paid Rome a certain amount for a certain area. Now, the way they profited was they made anything on top of it that they could. So tax collectors notably created taxes. Uh, here's a tax for four wheels on your cart. Uh, here's the four-wheel tax. You know, here's the, and they were just constantly ripping people off, right? So they hated them. Now, 
Matthew is an outcast. He's turned his back on religion to work in, in this industry, this sinful industry. And he says, I want nothing to do with the synagogue. I want nothing to do with God's people. And he walked away from a life after God into a shameful lifestyle. Pretty interesting that he was called by God to write the gospel of Matthew, right? He would have had these really good abilities, though, because most of the disciples were fishermen, likely illiterate, you know, to some, at least not advanced, you know, and right. But Matthew was meticulous in record keeping, uh, very literate. And it's interesting God calls him to write the gospel of Matthew. Here's something else that's interesting, right? Okay. He likely was, there's some archaeological evidence to indicate that he was taxing people, that tax collectors were taxing people for fish. So, so think about this. He's at a tax booth in the area of the Sea of Galilee, Peter, James, John, all the other fishermen. Matthew's likely putting the tax heavily on all these disciples, and now Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, right? Can you imagine that? They're probably sitting there like, Jesus, no, no, no. <laughs> this guy, right? He's a criminal, and Jesus comes up to him right in the middle of his criminal activity, right? It's just like the equivalent of like the guy's just cutting dope, you know, he's selling drugs or whatever. He's just, he's right in the middle of pimping or whatever he's doing, you know what I mean? And he's right in the middle of like mafia racket, right? And Jesus comes up to him right in the middle of his workday and he says, follow me. The guy's like, all right, I'm done. He folds up the book. I'm done with this lifestyle. And he follows Jesus, right? Wow. He begins a new walk of life, a 180, a U-turn for Christ. Can't go back after this. Rome wouldn't have him. Can you imagine how many days he probably sat there with all those people that didn't really love him and all those people that were just criminals like he was in this dark side. He's got all these friends that only love him when he's partying with them and when he's you know, tax collecting and he's a bandit and all this stuff. And like He's got this band of thieves around him. And so many days he probably said, I wish I could hang out with mom and dad. You know what I mean? I wish, they, I wish I didn't bring so much shame upon my family. You know, I've got all the money in the world, you know, but it doesn't even matter, you know. It doesn't even matter because, like, I know this is dark, you know, and I want the light, you know. How many times he probably sat and felt like that? Verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. I brought a picture in uh, I can't remember the artist's name. Oh, it's a fine art, old picture of, this is the party at Matthew's house. That's what's going on. Matthew gets saved. He starts following Jesus, and he decides, I need to throw a party and have Jesus come over. He'll be the guest of honor, right? And so uh, this is a depiction of it. Pretty grand house. I mean, Matthew was probably pretty well off. This is an extremely rough crowd. People that turned their back on religion. Uh, the religious people in that day just wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus wanted something to do with him. And so he goes and he's sitting there. Uh, it says, verse 11, um, Pharisees saw it. They said to his disciples, they don't even go direct, directly to Jesus. They go to his disciples and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Remember the Pharisees? They were the what? Starts with a P. Purists. Good job. All right, cool. You guys are tracking along. Eating people was a very, eating, eating people, eating people was very serious in this day. It's very serious today, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> Good grief. I'm smelling the, the, the dressing back there. I better eat somebody. 
eating with somebody was a very serious thing in that day and age. They believed that when you sat and you ate of the same bread together, that it was becoming part of them, it was becoming part of me, and we're becoming one together. This was a serious, serious thing. It's not like today you just woof down a happy meal and, you know, and stuff like that. This was a very serious occasion. And so these guys are like, these, these Pharisees, they're like, look at this rabbi. He claims to be a teacher. He's not. He's no teacher of the Jews. He's sitting becoming one with scum. So Jesus answers their opposition. Look at verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't that good news? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. So as you guys know, um, Aaron and I have been in the doctors, you know, more often in this last like couple months than we have been ever in our marriage. And it made me think about this, like, what if we went to the doctor and we go into the clinic and we go up to the receptionist and we say, hey, you know, I need to see a doctor. And they say, well, why? Because I'm sick. Oh, he won't see you. Why? Oh, because you're sick. What? Or you go down to urgent care down here and you go in there and you say, you got your arms like half severed off. It's hanging by a tendon. You know, you're just, your bones protruding through. You broke your arm. I need to see a doctor. Oh, he won't see you. Why? Oh, because you're sick. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, you know, be around sick people. <laughs> what? That's what Jesus is saying that these scribes and Pharisees are like, right? He's saying, you religious people, you know, you people with all your robes and your religion and your, you know, your pomp, you should be bringing spiritual healing to the sick people. But you're not doing that. You're all hanging out together in your holy huddle, as they call it, and you don't want anything to do with sick people. That's what Jesus is saying. You ever been to the doctor like that? I, I'm not going to go around with sick people. That's what he's saying. Look at it there. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus, why do you sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to bring spiritual healing to these people that need it. Because guess what? Everybody's a sinner, right? I love what he goes on and says um, right here. He says, verse 13, look at that. Remember, the, the Pharisees, these guys were religious professionals. They knew the Bible better than I'll ever know the Bible, right? And look what he says to them, verse 13. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea chapter 6 to him. Essentially, he tells these religious professionals, he says, you need to go study your Bible. <laughs> because you've learned in the Bible, and you've learned by your man-made traditions how to do all this religion and all these rituals, and you know how to do all these things, but... You don't even know the heart of God. Now, I wonder if that's how some of you maybe grew up today. You grew up in a church where they were doing the rituals, they were doing the things, they had all this stuff going, but you had no idea what was going on, and you didn't have a heart for God, and you didn't even understand the heart of God in that place. 
That's how these guys were. He says, you need to go read the Bible. You need to figure out the heart of God. Because where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, the, the Pharisees, they did all the religion. They did all the rituals. They made all the sacrifices. They fasted. They gave all the tithing. They did all the things that they, their elders said. By the way, the stuff they did was what was in the Bible, but it was on top of it, man-made traditions. And they observed all those things meticulously. And Jesus says, you know what? You're really good at religion, but you don't know the heart of God. You know? You know how to follow a bunch of rules. You know how to keep the rules really well. You think God loves you because you keep rules. You don't know the heart of God. God's merciful. God looks at these people that are broken in alcoholism and drugs and prostitution and tax collecting and sexual sin. And he looks at all these people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd and he wants to bring mercy to their life. He doesn't want to give them what they deserve. That's what mercy is. It's when you don't get what you deserve. And God wants to come and give mercy to the broken, to the sick. That's what he wants to do. And Jesus, I love Jesus. He tells these religious people, he says, you know what? You judgmental people. You turn up your nose when you see homeless people. You turn up your nose when you see people that don't believe and think like you do. And you don't know the heart of God. God wants to give these people mercy. Look at it there. For I did not come, Jesus says, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Are there any righteous? No, the Bible says there's not one righteous. But there are self-righteous people. They think they have no need for Jesus because they think they're so good. You would say to them, you'd say, how do you know you're going to go to heaven if there's a God and there's an afterlife? You'd say, well, because I'm a pretty good person. I've done a few good things in my life. Hey, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, most likely. So God, you know, if there is a God, he'll have mercy on me. He'll understand. Really? You're like these Pharisees here. Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I didn't come to call self-righteous people because you self-righteous people, you don't realize that you have any need for Jesus. You think you're pretty good just the way that you are. Why are you doing that? Because you're comparing yourself to the standard of the world around you, and you're not comparing yourself next to Jesus Christ. You're not comparing yourself next to the standard. You're making your own standard by watching TV and pointing the finger at people that don't believe and think like you. So Jesus said, I didn't come to call people like that. I didn't come to call people that live by their own standard. I came to call people that understand they fall short of my standard and they need mercy. Right? He says he came to call sinners to repentance. Now, what repentance means, it doesn't mean, like, whip yourself. You know, as some people think that, they think that word repent is like this terrible word. It's actually a big blessing. What God has done is he's called, just like he did with Matthew here, is he's called you to get serious about your life and to say, you know what, am I living in darkness? Okay, you know what? When the lights shine on me, yes, I am living in darkness. And so God wants to give you this great blessing of saying you can repent. You can turn from that. Repent just means to change your mind. It's the Greek word metanoia. It just means to change your mind about something. So God gives you this amazing opportunity to change your mind about your sin, to change your mind about your life without him, and to put your mind on having a life with him and to live a life of goodness and wholeness and purity and holiness and all these good things. He gives you that ability to repent from your sin. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to call you self-righteous people that think you don't need me. I came to call the people that are aware of the fact that they're walking on a path straight to hell. And I want to give them a way out. I want to give them a way out of that. You know, there are two types of people in this church, probably, and probably in the church in Mason City, Iowa, and probably the church around the world. There are two Primarily two types of people. People that think they're so good that they don't need Jesus. 
And then there's people that think they're so bad that Jesus wants nothing to do with them. Good news. The gospel, the the cross of Christ, the crucifixion, resurrection, the gospel, it ministers to both those people. It tells the proud, people think they don't need Jesus. It says, look, you know, you think you're not all that bad. I'm going to tell you something. You're actually so bad it took nothing less than the Son of God to die for you. That's how bad you are. And it brings that person down a few pegs to the level ground at the cross. And it takes the person that's so beat down that thinks Jesus wants nothing to do with them, and it lifts them up. Because not only are you so bad he had to die for you, you're so loved that he did die for you, right? Oh, it's so good. It takes people from all places of life, and it brings them all to the cross, right? So good. So they're opposing Jesus because he has the authority to call sinners. You're not supposed to call those kind of people. I'll tell you what, I came to call those kind of people. So good. we got to be careful that we don't have that inner Pharisee going. When we see God blessing people and calling people, some of us get this thing going where we say, how can God bless them? I'm so much better than they are. I follow his rules so much better than they are. That person doesn't even read their Bible. But God blesses them? Look out. You're a Pharisee. (laughs) Aren't you glad Jesus eats with sinners? Aren't you glad when we eat food today that Jesus is going to eat with us? So good. Last point, number three, Jesus' authority over tradition. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? I always, if I was, if I was there, I would say, why do you need to ask me why you do the things you do? <laughs> I mean, come on. Is your religion so mindless you don't even know why you do the things that you do? I mean, come on. But that's not what the text says. That's, that's what I would have said if I was there. But that's why I'm, I'd be a bad God, you know? I'd be a bad Messiah, real bad. So these disciples of John, they're disciples of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had the forerunner ministry of pointing people towards Jesus Christ, but not everybody quit following John and started following Jesus. And so he still had disciples uh, following him. And he says, why do we fast all the time? The Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. Now, by the way, fasting is abstaining from food for a period of time for religious purposes. Now, there's a couple of places in the Bible it's prescribed, but the way that the Pharisees and the disciples of John were doing it is in a way that man prescribed. It wasn't found in the Bible. And so what they're doing is they're saying, how come we worship in a way that your disciples don't, Jesus? And um, that's really the issue there, the man-made tradition. How come Jesus and his disciples don't keep our man-made traditions? Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? Look at verse 15. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Hmm. What's that mean? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the illustration here is of a wedding. You've got the bride and the bridegroom. The analogy is the bride is the body of Christ. It's the Christians. It's the disciples. And the bridegroom is Jesus. And what he's saying is, I'm right there with them. It doesn't make sense to do fasting and, you know, because fasting is typically associated with mourning over sin. And he's like, this is a joyous occasion. 
So you guys are coming bringing your man-made understanding of religion and you're saying, you guys can't be very spiritual and religious. You don't worship the way we do. And Jesus says, will you just think about this for a second? This is a joyous occasion. The Messiah is with his people. But the days are coming when Jesus will be put on the cross and he will be crucified, he will resurrect, and then he will ascend to heaven. And he's alluding to his death and he's saying, there is a time coming where it will be appropriate to fast. Understand the root of the opposition here? I don't want to receive Jesus because he doesn't follow my man-made tradition. Get that? Verse 16, now Jesus is going to illustrate to them, what Jesus is going to explain is, look, I came to do something new. All right? They're thinking through the lens of Judaism. Jesus says, no, I came to do something new. And that's what the illustration in verse 16 and 17 proves. He says this, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. I even brought a picture to illustrate. Uh, check it out. New cloth, old garment. Now, all of you that know how to do some laundry, if you have a hole in your jeans, old jeans, they're your, they're your friends. All you need is a good pair of jeans, girl. <laughs> That's what they say. That's a, there's a book called that. Um, but if you have some old jeans, nice and broken in, and then they get a hole in them and you want to patch them, of course, people don't patch them today. They just have a hole in it. They think it's cool. Um, but if you wanted to put a patch on it, would you put a brand new piece of denim on it? Rose, why wouldn't you do that? It's going to rip out. That's right. That's exactly what Jesus says. He says, no one takes a new piece of, thank you, Rose. Nobody puts a new cloth on an old garment to patch it because it's, it's going to tear away. It's going to rip. It's going to make both things worse. The new patch is going to be useless, and the garment's going to be ripped even further. Now look at verse 17. He says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Do you see that? Let me show you a picture of a wineskin. Yeah, that looks like a lamb. It is a lamb. That's what they used um, to for the processing of wine. It's, it's known as a wineskin. So what would happen was you take new wine and you would fill it into a new wineskin. And as wine ferments, it emits gases. And as it emits gases, the whole you know, container expands, right? And so this thing only has so much give in it, right? Oh, that's gross. <laughs> Sorry. I got lost for a second. I was like, Ugh. So here's the whole thing is after this thing is stretched and worn out completely, if you took new wine that had not fermented in it, guess what would happen? Pew. Maybe not like that, but it'd probably just rip a little bit and then the wine would probably come all over the place. You know? Here's what Jesus is getting at. You Jews are trying to take the new thing that I'm doing and you're trying to fit it and force it into the old framework of Judaism. It's not going to work. The illustration of the patch. Jesus did not come to patch up Judaism to make it a little better. He came to do a new thing, right? He came to do a new thing. 
Jesus, in this illustration, his thing, his new program, the new covenant, is the new wine. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to fill it into this old container of Judaism. doesn't work. That's why they're having a problem with Jesus. They're saying, he can't be God. He can't be the Messiah. Why? Because he doesn't fit into the framework of our denomination, of, of Judaism, I mean. You see how this applies today, right? There was a time when the only way to worship the Lord was with pipe organs, of course. You guys are going to have church? Where's the pipe organ? Back here? Okay, where's the organ? Blasphemers. No organ? Oh, my goodness, guitar. Okay, let's cast out the devil. Wait a minute, you, you mean that they're Lutherans? Wait a minute, we're Methodists. No. Wait a minute, you mean that they've been baptized uh, in the church he grew up in? That was, the, that was not the Missouri Synod? No, 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 no. We got to rebaptize you. Well, wait a minute. Did you see that pastor? He didn't even wear a white shirt on Sunday. Satan. That's the idea of, you know, of how you apply this to your life today. People do that all the time, don't they? We got to be careful that we don't fall into that, right? Because Calvary Chapel, man, oh man, you can get into that. You can say Calvary Chapel is the way, the truth, and life because Calvary Chapel teaches the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, listen, I believe that this method that we have here is great. It's casual. We focus on Jesus Christ. We focus on his word. We take him seriously. We don't take ourselves too seriously. But listen, it's not the only way to do church, right? And there are people where God, God might actually start working heavily in another sort of ministry. And we don't, God forbid, we don't want to say, look, he's not doing a genuine work over there because they don't teach the Bible verse by verse and they're not Calvary Chapel people. You got to watch out for that, man. Humans are like old wineskins at a certain point. If you don't ask the Lord, God, please keep me pliable and flexible, you will start missing what God is doing in churches around. You'll, you'll miss what he's doing in the body of Christ because you think you've got the lock on it. Right? So God forbid we'd ever become people like that. Very tempting. Here's another thing, too, is you might miss the work of the Lord, what he's doing in your life today, because you think all he did was he came to patch up your old life. Anybody ever think of Jesus like that? Like, okay, I've been kind of doing my own thing, but you know what? This is compelling. I'm going to add a little bit of Jesus to my life because I need a spiritual life. My life's like a pie chart, right? Here's how much I sleep. Here's how much I eat. Here's how much I work. I got to put some spirituality in my pie chart. Okay, so I think rather than Buddha, you know, rather than, you know, Allah, I don't, like, don't go for the Muslim things too much, rather than yoga, rather than new age, you know, I've been next door, I did Reiki, it didn't happen. So let me put Jesus in this little pie chart of my life. Now, because you think Jesus, all he did was he came to just patch up your old life a little bit, you know? I'll tell you what's been missing in my life. Now that I've got a little bit of Jesus, I can achieve all the goals that I've had my whole life. I can just continue living this whole life. Now I'm a little better. Listen, you're going to have problems with Jesus because he came to do something new. He came to totally rework your life. He came to make you a new creation. He came to fill you with something new. He came to say, to, to do a new work in you to where you say, the old is gone and the new has come. Right? Jesus didn't come simply to patch up your old tattered life. So long as you try to keep it like that, you're going to have a big problem with Jesus. 
you're saying maybe, that's exactly what my problem's been with Jesus today. I thought he just came to patch up my old broken down life and add a little bit to it. No, he came to give you new life altogether. Learning from the opposition. He's a blasphemer. No, he's not. He can forgive, and he can forgive you right now. He's no Messiah. He calls sinners and eats with them. Yeah, and he even wants to call you. He doesn't fit our tradition. He can't be the Messiah. No, he came to do something better than your tradition. He can't be bound by tradition. Maybe you're like the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. You say, I would never call him a blasphemer, but yet you doubt his ability to forgive, and it's obvious because you walk around in guilt. You just need to let that go right now. He has the authority to forgive you, and he will right now. You say in the quiet place of your heart, Jesus, I need forgiveness, and he will. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Christian bar of soap, I love it. It's my favorite verse in the Bible, one of them. I say that about all of them. It says, if we will confess our sin to him, that he's faithful to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Have you been washed in the blood of the lamb, as the song says? Have you been cleansed? Has your soul been cleansed? Are you walking around dirty today? You can be cleansed right now. You just say, Jesus, I hear what you're saying to me. I've broken your laws. I've broken, I've fallen short of your glory. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen. I haven't done the things I should. I did the things I shouldn't do. All you do is you just, you just come clean. That's all you do is you just come clean. The searchlight of the scriptures is on you. The, script, the searchlight of the Holy Spirit's on you right now. Don't waste this opportunity. This is your opportunity, right? Jesus is shining the light on you. And that's what he wants you to do. He just wants you to come clean with him. He wants you to come clean with him so he can clean you. Maybe you're like those Pharisees. Say he doesn't fit my lifestyle. Well, good news. Your lifestyle is not working anyway. So be honest. You need to give your life to Christ right now. He's got something better for you than you could do for yourself. Thank God he eats with sinners. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word here today. God, you're so good to us. Lord, search us and try us and know our hearts and find any opposition in our hearts to the work that you do, Lord. And God, help us by your Spirit to lay it aside. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty, wonderful name.